Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are. Welcome to the policy seminar on building resilience to prevent food crisis and conflicts. My name is Rob Voss. I'm the director of market trade and institutions of the International Food Policy Research Institute, and I will be your moderator today. This event is co-organized by the International Food Policy Research Institute, the Food Security Information Network, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the World Food Programme, and the food security uh, portal. A key background to this event is the latest global report on food crisis, jointly prepared by 16 organizations that are united in the food security information network. The report informs the work of the global network against food crisis, about which we will hear more in the course of this seminar. According to the report, the latest report, an alarming 150 million people faced crisis level or worse uh, of uh, levels of acute food insecurity and needing immediate food assistance to survive. Several hundreds of thousands of these people faced actual famine. These numbers are on the rise. The COVID-19 pandemic clearly worsened conditions, uh, but also last year, the key drivers of the major food crisis in the world were conflict and extreme weather events. We expect also that conflict will, be, will continue to be a main factor driving food crisis, exacerbated in most contexts by, again, extreme weather and the economic consequences of the continued COVID-19 pandemic. Most food crises are protected and have severely eroded the resilience of agricultural and food systems. Severe and protected food insecurity in turn also tends to fuel conflict, civil strife in these fragile contexts. In current, if current trends are not reversed, food crises and with it conflicts will increase in frequency and severity. There's just an urgent need to step up efforts to build more resilient agri-food systems that are socially, environmentally, and economically sustainable. But doing so will not be easy. This policy seminar will focus on experiences and strategies that help build food system resilience and prevent conflict at the same time. To discuss this, we have an impressive lineup of expert speakers to engage with you today. We'll have um, first opening remarks by um, Dr. Johan Swinnen, the Director General of uh, IFPRI. And then we have the presentation of the key findings of the global report by Dominica Savella of the Food and Security Information Network, uh, together with Lavinia Antonacci, who's uh, of the Secretariat of the Global Network Against Food Crisis. That introduction of the key findings of the report will be followed by two keynote addresses by um, international actors, very active in um, um, programs and actions to help integrate the food crisis, uh, respectively, Giampiero Mucci of the European Commission and Jim Barnard, the head of the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security of USAID. The keynote addresses will be followed by a panel discussion with six experts active in early warning, early action systems to prevent and address food crisis, and in research for the better design of responses to food crisis. We will hear from them uh, what the challenges are and what the options are for solutions. 
will introduce them uh, once they take the floor. After those interventions, there will be ample space for interaction with you, the audience. And we'll close the seminar with a wrap up by the new director of the uh, FAO office in Washington, Ms. Jocelyn Brown Hall. So um, before I give the floor to the first speaker, um, uh, let me advise you that you can, uh, during the entire seminar, uh, place your um, questions and comments in um, uh, chat boxes um, through uh, ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter and uh, whatever, depending on whichever media you use to connect to this seminar. So without further ado, let me hand the floor to um, Jo Swinnen, the Director General of IFPRI, to give us some uh, welcome and introductory remarks to the seminar. Jo, over to you. Thank you very much, Rob, and uh, welcome to everybody on the panel and to uh, those of you who are uh, listening to us. Um, you know, I was uh, in preparation of this uh, meeting and, and my introduction, I was going, I actually just checked on on, uh, on the website and it's almost 40 years ago, it was actually on 30 July 1983 that Bob Geldof of the Irish band, the Boontown Rats, if you remember, organized Life Aid at Wembley Stadium. Um, for those of you of my generation or older or maybe also the younger generation, we hope this would be the last time that an event like that would have to be organized to address the stark problems of famines in the world. And although over the past decades we've made tremendous progress in reducing hunger and malnutrition, here we are again in 2021, almost 40 years later, and facing uh, famines again in the world. The number of people are, who are facing acute food insecurity and needing urgent livelihoods uh, support has hit a five-year high in 2020. This is uh, concluded by the, uh, the Global Report Against Food Crisis, the report which has now come out several years in a row and which is playing a very important role of pointing out these major problems in the world. It's published by the Food Security Information Network for the Global Network Against uh, Food Crises. It also brings out some of the causes of these food, these acute food insecurity problems. There are conflict, there are economic shocks, they're weather related. As Rob has emphasized already, some of it has to do with COVID, some of it has not to do with COVID. But in any case, it is pushing many millions of people into acute food insecurity. 2020 is not an exception. I mean, the numbers have been on the rise for several years now, at least since the mid of the last uh, decade, and it is a very, very, very worsening, uh, worrisome trend. Geographically, it's mainly uh, concentrated in Africa. Two out of three people who are faced, uh, facing acute food insecurity are based in Africa, but there are many countries across the world who are suffering from the same problems. As Rob already explained in his introductory remark, the food um, crises which are leading to this acute food security are protracted. Okay, they're not just a one-off event, a one-month event or something, which means that they probably cannot be resolved by humanitarian aid alone. So we, find to find, we need to find more structural solutions that think of lines of along the corridor or the nexus of humanitarian assistance, development, peace-building activities all coming together and reinforcing each other. We also know that many of these conflicts are actually concentrated in rural areas, 
and that food insecurity is not only a consequence of conflict, it's also a cause of conflict. So we have to look into the complexities of these and to focusing on the location where the activities are uh, developing and leading to these, these major problems. We are really treasuring in this work we are doing at IFPRI, uh, we are treasuring the collaboration with all the agencies uh, in the Food Security Information Network. They include many people who are on the program today, such as FAO, World Food Program, FuseNet, but also many uh, more than a dozen uh, other agencies which are involved. They are producing the uh, global report on food crisis, as I mentioned already, and this has become a key reference uh, for identifying food crisis and their main problems. And so we hope to support these activities going in uh, the future. It is also an important input in the global network against food crisis uh, and the European Commission and USAID have, are really important agencies supporting this, this network and they will uh, contribute their views as well on the program today. Finally, let me just uh, relate the, some of the uh, discussions of today with uh, really important other activities. One is on the United Nations Food Systems Summit. Later in the year, we, and together with many of the partners again today on the panel, are working in preparation of the Food Systems Summit to come up with ideas, not just for solving structural food uh, insecurity in the future, but also acute food uh, insecurity in the future. IFRI itself is undergoing major uh, restructuring right now as part of the one CGIR developments and so also there we hope to uh, invest very significantly in building our capacity to address resilience uh, of food systems in the future, resilience against some of the issues, uh, the problems that we're discussing here today. And finally, let me point you out to the food security portal at IFRI's website where there is a lot of information in terms of early warning systems, early action systems for addressing food crisis going forward. We have a very impressive panel here, and so I'm uh, giving the floor to them now, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing from them. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Jo, uh, for those introductory remarks and setting the stage. Um, so let us now hear from um, the, the key findings from the Global Report on Food Crisis of 2021. And for that, I'm going to give the floor to Domenica Sabella, who's um, of the Secretariat of the Food Security Information Network, and Lavinia Tonacci, who's of the Technical Support Unit of the Global Network Against Food Crisis, to introduce the key findings of the report. Over to you, Domenica and Lavinia. Thank you, Rob. So uh, my name is Dominica Sabella, and I'm the FSIN Communications Officer. Uh, I'm incredibly pleased to be here today to provide some insights into the Global Report on Food Crises 2021, or affectionately, as it's also known, the GRFC 2021. So the GRFC on its surface is actually a compilation of food security and nutrition analyses. Um, and it is also a document of reference for the international community. But the GRFC is also the culmination of a consultative consensus-based process between 16 different partner organizations, which are visible towards the bottom of the PowerPoint presentation. So you might be asking yourself then, what does the report actually do? Well, it provides an overview of the numbers of acutely food insecure people 
people who needed urgent humanitarian assistance at the absolute worst point in the year. And for the report, we focused on countries where local capacities had already been exceeded and external assistance was requested. The information in the actual report is based on two sources, the IPC and the Kajaharmanize, uh, also referred to as the CH. Um, in some cases, however, we used IPC compatible sources. So for instance, FuseNet analyses, some of the WFP analyses and HNOs. Uh, in total, this resulted in about, in the, excuse me, in the selection of 15, in the selection of 55 countries and territories being included in the report. And on the screen, you can actually see the different phase classifications, which go from one to five. So we found that in these 55 countries and territories, there were 155 million people in crisis or worse. So thinking back to the previous slide, IPC CH phases three, four, or five, and that's for 2020. Um, in terms of numbers alone, that actually is about half of the entire US population. Um, the 155 million people is, is also representative of an increase about of 20 million people from 2019. Um, and the share of the analyzed population in crisis or worse was also increased from 2019 to 2020. We saw some of the biggest increases in numbers in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Northern Nigeria, Syria, and Sudan. However, there is one important caveat that while yes, these increases did reflect the worsening levels of acute food insecurity, um, they were also representative of wider geographical coverage of the actual analyses. So in very simple and plain terms, we basically have a situation that deteriorated or got worse, but we also ended up having more information for the 2021 report. Um, namely, we had information for places which we previously had no information for, uh, urban centers, for instance. So in terms of what this looks like regionally, um, nearly 100 million people in IPCCH's phases three, four, or five were actually in Africa. And again, here's the, the, regional, the regional breakdown. But ultimately, the question then becomes, what is actually at the root of all of this? Um, what is fueling food crises? Well, this isn't a surprise to, to many people. Um, there are actually three primary drivers, conflict, economic shocks, which includes COVID-19, and weather extremes. And here, we, there is a breakdown of where the people basically were in which countries. So for instance, uh, conflict was the main driver in 55, um, in the 55 countries, economic shocks became more significant in 2020 as the indirect impact of COVID-19 exacerbated fragilities, um, heavy rains, caused flooding, which often led to destruction and displacement in most of the food crisis countries 
uh, and territories in Africa, the Middle East, um, and South Asia. But we also had a very overactive hurricane season, which brought on flooding and drought, which of course contributed then to the precipitous rise in acute food insecurity in parts of Central America and Haiti. We shouldn't forget displacement and the role of displacement in all of this. So whether people are internally displaced or refugees, we have extremely troubling statistics on the number of displaced people in crises. We know that displacement exacerbates the underlying causes of malnutrition, limited access and availability of food, um, child feeding practices, we also know that refugees' ability to actively source employment and healthy diets was severely constrained in 2020 by the impact of COVID-19, but as well as the ongoing legal restrictions on refugee rights. Um, we do know that in the of the 30.5 million refugees and asylum seekers in the world, nearly 38% actually originate just from three countries: Syria, 6.7 million. Afghanistan, 3 million, South Sudan, 2.3 million. So in many respects, COVID has actually made a very worrying situation go from bad to worse. Specifically for children, um, their malnutrition situation depicted in the GRFC is also incredibly concerning. We know that children living in food crisis countries and territories are especially vulnerable to malnutrition. Um, in the 55 countries and territories, 15.8 million children under five were wasted while roughly 75 million children were stunted. And we also know that Research shows malnutrition has long-term effects in the development of children, but also in the development of, of communities. Um, and with those important bits of information and highlights uh, regarding the global report, I will turn over to my co-presenter, Lavinia, uh, who will now do a bit more of a drill down into some of the actual findings of the GRFC. So with that, I thank you. Yes, uh, as Dominica said, I will dig a little bit more into the, um, some of the findings of this analysis. And with this first slide, I would like to reiterate what already came out from the discussion so far in the presentation. Uh, in terms of an alarming trend, uh, we see that uh, there is a deterioration of acute food insecurity. And this especially when we look at the same 39 countries uh, that were analyzed uh, across the five years of the production of the Global Report on Food Crisis. As you see from the slide, this trend is shown both in terms of absolute numbers. So you see that from 2016, it goes to from 94 million to 147 million in 2020. And uh, at the same time, uh, this is confirmed uh, when we look at the prevalence uh, of the population in crisis or worst. Uh, so going from 13% to 21% of the population. So overall, uh, I would say that this slide points uh, very much to a worsening of the food insecurity situation in some countries and contexts. Uh, Dominica already presented some of the uh, crisis uh, where there was uh, 
uh, an increase uh, of these uh, figures, and especially due to the protracted or intensifying conflict and insecurity, but also to a combination of drivers, uh, including the incidence of COVID-19 related measures, uh, which uh, uh, had an exacerbating effect on existing vulnerabilities. So. Let me now pass uh, to uh, these other slides, uh, because uh, still talking about uh, major food crisis, uh, we have noticed in 2020 that 66% of the global number, so of the 155 million people, is concentrated in 10 countries or contexts for a total of 103 million people in IPC crisis or above. Other important elements that I want to highlight in this slide uh, is that uh, for the third consecutive year, we see that three conflict affected countries, and so DRC, Yemen, and Afghanistan, have the largest uh, population in crisis uh, or worst conditions. And second, again, in terms of prevalence, uh, looking so at the, per the percentage of the population analyzed, uh, uh, being in IPC phase three or above, but we see that uh, countries like uh, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Syria, Yemen and Zimbabwe have above 40% of their population or at least 40%. But here even more concerning are these uh, crises at the bottom of the slide, uh, which have uh, over half of their population in uh, this uh, uh, acute food insecurity conditions. So, so um, <clears throat> I think that uh, with this, uh, I'll pass now to another very concerning finding, uh, which is uh, the population in emergency. So in total, we have 28 million people in 38 countries uh, that faced uh, this condition in 2020. And uh, uh, we see that this is really the extremely critical situation in terms of acute food insecurity. This uh, total number shows an increase from uh, 2019. Uh, and uh, the major increases uh, at country level were found in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan, and Sudan. Here, I want to point to the fact that uh, alone, uh, these three countries uh, had uh, half of this population in, in phase four. So 40 million only in these three countries. So I think that uh, that's uh, particularly important. Also in the pie chart, you can see that uh, in eight countries or territories, uh, there was uh, above 1 million people facing emergency conditions. So in this next slide, uh, I show you really which are these countries and the specific figures. But uh, again, I want to point to few elements. One is that these eight countries uh, accounted for 75% of the total population in emergency. And again, in terms of prevalence, so you see that uh, six countries have above 10% of their population in emergency. Lastly, just let me say that uh, the majority of this uh, context uh, with the uh, IPC or Cadromonize phase four are conflict uh, affected countries uh, or insecurity and conflict are really among the primary drivers uh, of this situation. Now, uh, looking also at the most severe phase of the IPC and uh, uh, the Cadromonize, catastrophe conditions were observed in three countries in 2020. South Sudan, Yemen, and Burkina accounted for 133,000 people. And again, I would like to point to the fact that this food crisis in these countries 
are mainly due to conflict and insecurity in a context of uh, displacement and uh, also limited humanitarian access. Now, also, you see from these slide projections are also pointing to the deteriorating or worsening trends. But uh, now, uh, finally, with this uh, last slide, I want to show that uh, since the publication of the global report, uh, the outlook for 2021 is already very alarming. And so points again to a worsening of the situation and uh, some countries also showing uh, population in phase five. And so we have uh, here on the slide Madagascar with uh, 28,000 people in the Grand Sud uh, in uh, catastrophe conditions and Ethiopia. Ethiopia with uh, 350,000 people in catastrophe conditions that are expected also to increase. And so here, of course, uh, the um, situation uh, is also due to the effects of conflict. And uh, so elevated population displacement, uh, uh, 1.7 million people displaced, uh, that uh, um, most of them are in the Tigray region, and uh, uh, movement restriction, limited humanitarian access, uh, also coupled with uh, food production losses uh, and uh, market dysfunctions uh, are behind these numbers. Finally, just uh, one word more for any further information. You can find these publications for more details, of course, uh, on this uh, website. So I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Domenica and Slovenia, for uh, presenting, actually, I would say, beautifully presenting these facts. But of course, they're very worrisome uh, trends and uh, facts that we've uh, uh, what we've seen and that we are expecting also for 2021. So I guess now is a good time to move to, so what, what is our responsiveness to crises and how can we build resilience uh, against these crises so we can uh, revert these trends and, uh, and avoid seeing famines in the future. So let me first turn to our first keynote speaker, uh, Giampiero Muzzi, who is a senior policy officer at the Sustainable Agri-Food System and Fisheries Director General as the Director General for International Partnerships of the European Commission to uh, yeah, precisely talk about what is the food crisis responsiveness and uh, the role of the global network against food crisis. Jean-Pierre, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Rob. And uh, thank you very much to Domenica and Lavinia for this uh, presentation. Now, clearly the global report indicates that hunger continues to hit the most fragile contexts and the most vulnerable social groups. Of course, we are concerned with this situation. We were also particularly concerned by the fact that 39 countries out of the 55 that are in the global report 2021 have been in food crisis in all the five years since the global report was first published in 2017. So clearly there is, there is something structurally wrong as 70% of food crises in 2020 are the same ones as those in, in 2016. We do have a common understanding of the root causes, uh, conflict, uh, climate change, uh, extreme weather events, uh, economic shocks compounded by the COVID-19. So the challenge is how to reverse these long-term trends to prevent the worsening food crisis in the future. I want to spend a few words on what the EU is doing, the efforts of the European Union. In the European Union, we have a new policy framework 
the European Green Deal, which is a roadmap to a green, sustainable, and inclusive recovery in the EU and beyond the European Union. We have a farm to fork strategy, which sets a transformational agenda for sustainable agri-food systems. These two documents, these two policies are informing our ongoing programming exercise. All our delegations and headquarters, we are right now engaged into the programming of the 2021-2027 period. And I want just to mention a few of our priorities, our spending targets. We have a 30% spending target related to climate change, 20% spending target for human development, 10% on migration, and all of this with a strong focus on gender and youth. Now, there are several building blocks in the action, in the engagement of the European Union. I want just to quickly mention three of these building blocks. The first one is to promote sustainable agri-food systems. Uh, the transition to sustainable agri-food systems is one key objective of social sustainability, which means achieving food and nutrition security and resilience to food crisis. As Team Europe, we have already uh, committed close to 40 billion euro to help our partners dealing with social and economic consequences of the pandemic. The second building block relates to multilateralism, continuing to work with multilateral actors and partners. We look forward in particular to very important multilateral events in the next future. This year, uh, uh, Food System Summit in September, the Nutrition for Growth Summit in December, but also the COP15 on biodiversity, the COP26 on climate change, the G7 and the, G and the G20 processes. And the third pillar, last not least, effective humanitarian development and peace nexus. I want just to recall that the Global Network Against Food Crisis was created specifically for this purpose back in 2016 by our visionary leaders. Actually, they came together in 2016 and actually they were able to break silos. Uh, when it comes to the global network against food crisis, I want just to highlight three priorities that we see as European Union for the engagement of the global network in the, in the, next, in the next future, in the coming months. The first one, relates to the global report against food on food crisis. Sorry. This is a flagship publication of the global network. And I should say one of its major achievements. Since 2016, this report has provided a transparent consensus-based global picture of food crisis through a process that involves now 16 partners. It is facilitated by the Food Security Information Network, which is based at WFP headquarters in Rome. Now, these 55 countries that are reported in the Global Report 2021, they absorb 97% of food-related humanitarian aid. So this shows that the targeting of the Global Report is correct. So what is the priority? The Global Network must consolidate this achievement, taking up recent challenges, for example, lack of data and lack of access in many areas, but also exploiting new opportunities, new technologies, innovative techniques for data collection. And most important, it must continue to speak with one, one voice, 
providing a, a joint needs assessment as a public good. The second priority for the uh, global network, the global network must contribute to very ambitious outcomes from the multilateral events ahead of us. I refer in particular to the UN Food System Summit in September. We are happy to see that already the global, the global network is engaged in supporting the national dialogues, particularly in very fragile countries. And in our vision, we see the global network becoming a game changer and in perspective, an effective coalition and the key player at the, at the Food System Summit, but of course, beyond and after the Food System Summit, deepening the engagement at country level, including through anticipatory action and long-term cooperation between humanitarian development and peace-building actors. Third priorities for the global network, last not least, the global network should consolidate what we call normally the third pillar, the beyond food dimension. So that means deepening the knowledge on the links between the food driver and other drivers of complex crisis and to use its convening power to keep very high in the international agenda, the commitment to fight food crisis, famine, and ultimately to achieve SDG2 zero hunger. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Giampiero, for um, well, showing us what the uh, Global Network uh, is prioritizing to do. And it's uh, heartening to see the uh, stepping up the action in a concerted way. Uh, let's hope this, this will indeed uh, help move things um, in the right direction and uh, uh, make us more resilient and make particularly the vulnerable population more resilient against food crisis. Now that same topic, um, I'm now very honored and pleased to welcome uh, Jim Barnard, the head of the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security of USAID to give us some of the insights and the uh, priorities uh, of the work undertaken by USAID. Jim, you have the floor. Thank you, Rob. And, and thanks to, to Dominica and Lavinia for excellent presentations, you said, Rob. And it's great to be following Jean-Pierre found his comments quite, quite interesting. Um, I'm actually pleased to, to, to be able to, to spend this time with you at the launch of the report and acknowledge the, the work of the organizations that have collected the data. Uh, as USAID is an organization that is built on maximum effectiveness of taxpayer resources, it's critical that um, we have objective um, quantified data upon which to make the best decisions for how we allocate uh, resources. And um, certainly we feel that this coalition that brings together these, these groups on the data issues uh, is absolutely fundamental to uh, us maximizing our, our, our decision-making. Um, particularly, it's important that we, we separate the, the collection of the data from the implementation of the solutions. And when you, when you, when you can separate that so that the, not the same organizations are, are, are seeking or are, are giving you data and also seeking funds to solve the data is, is really important. So thank you very much for, for this. And we we're very pleased to be uh, supportive of the coalition. This is the type of data for us that's going to provide uh, 
the decision making for levels of support for places like the Tigray region of, of Ethiopia, where, as you saw earlier, currently 350,000 people are currently facing famine. And, and it also helps us with, with Yemen, it helps us with South, South Sudan and Northeast Nigeria. We're also concerned uh, as well about the worsening levels of emergency food insecurity in, in so many other countries of the regions like the Northern Triangle, where our administrator, Samantha Power, is, is visiting this week. Um, she's doing this as, uh, right now and looking at our food security programs. And all of these countries require immediate attention to prevent worsening disasters and, and help us all save lives. And the trend is simply going in the wrong direction. Historically speaking, We've always worked to, to support families hit by crises uh, with opportunities to protect their lives, livelihoods, and assets. And what we're doing differently in our, in our Bureau for Resilience and Food Systems is bringing a, a systems approach um, to help communities and nations break the vicious cycle of crises and sustainably reduce poverty and hunger. And it's as Jean-Pierre just noted, these, these same countries continually face these crises it is not something that's going to be solved with a humanitarian approach. It has to be a systemic um, look at the entire food system from start to finish, um, from, from, the, um, from the seed to the plate. And we have to figure out um, where the gaps are and, and address that. And so from life-saving assistance to, to new seeds um, that provide higher yields, digital innovations that help farmers work smarter and, and see climatic uh, disasters coming, we know that assistance in food security and agriculture works, particularly because agriculture is the backbone of so many economies around the world. But as we've seen over the last year, agriculture is influenced by external factors that we can't control, like conflict, uh, that devastate harvest seasons, pandemics that, that close borders and affect trade for farmers, and on top of it, on an ever worsening climate disasters that wipe out crops. And when these stressors compound on each other, families are left with few options. And that's why at USAID, we've made some substantive shifts to integrate resilience and adaptation programming into all of our portfolios to protect decades of development progress, reduce chronic vulnerability and the need for humanitarian assistance and help families bounce back from shocks and stresses. We do all of this with an emphasis on ensuring those who, who may have been left out of development, um, and particularly in the, in the near future, but also further back in the past. And, and we're engaged with, with activities, including women, youth, and marginalized groups. And it's a firm commitment of, and priority of the Biden-Harris administration. We know that resilient people, households, and communities can retain assets and savings that would otherwise be lost during disaster and conflict. And they're also less likely to require humanitarian assistance too. In fact, we found that every dollar we invest in adaptation and resilience saves $3 in humanitarian assistance when a crisis does strike. Resilience programming isn't just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. We, we began promoting the significance of resilience with USAID's Feed the Future initiative and the release of USAID's resilience policy in 2012. Matt came on the heels of addressing droughts in dry, in dry pastoralist and agriculture areas of East and uh, West Africa and, and famine in, in parts of Somalia. Our Feed the Future Innovation Labs 
created a, a drought resistant strain of maize that helped farmers maintain high crop yields despite high temperatures and less rain. And we've heard firsthand from families that resilience programming has made a difference when they experience hardships. Like Haptamu uh, Araga, he and his wife live in a shock-prone Ethiopian highlands. They were recipients of a few of USAID's programs, which provided them with links to, to markets and financial services. They were able to graduate from the Ethiopian government safety nets because of these services. And when their family was caught in drought in 2015, their progress was not hindered. Quite the contrary, they doubled their earnings again three years later. But ever since we connected with this family a few years ago, we've seen it, a lot of new threats come to the forefront. And we've had to adapt and broaden our understanding of the risks faced in these countries on the front end of disasters. Well-being and hunger are increasingly at risk as we see in this year's global report due to conflict, climate change, and COVID-19's economic effects. These compounding challenges are daunting but we are hopeful for the future because of our history of proven results and an agency structure that's conducive for addressing challenges. Because of USAID's efforts to build resilience through the Feed the Future initiative, an estimated 5.2 million families did not go to bed hungry between 2011 and 2017. And more recently, we saw from survey data that households living in the Feed the Future zones of influence in Uganda and Malawi were more resilient uh, to economic impacts of COVID-19 than households living outside of those areas. The Bureau that I oversee, the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, works hand-in-hand -hand with our USAID's Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. Our joint response in programming in these fragile contexts strengthens resilience in communities that are at risk of the current crisis. And we're excited to, to have our new administrator, Samantha Power, as she champions uh, human dignity above all, and encourages us to focus on our work with the most vulnerable. So with her leadership, we look forward to USAID's continued engagement with the global network against food crises and supporting the formation of a coalition focused on hunger and conflict for the upcoming UN Food Systems Summit. Um, to take a moment, um, I, I, this, this coalition, from my perspective, is gonna promote better coordination programming between humanitarian and development efforts in areas prone to crisis. And the coalition and its objectives will be among the U.S. government's top priorities for building resilient food systems during our participation in the summit this fall. And to follow up on Jean-Pierre's point, we do think it's critical that as we go into the summit, we think about um, opportunities for uh, countries to think through the best ways to address climate change conflict and, and COVID as, as a, in a systems approach. So, you know, in a way that works best with their current um, situation. Um, I'll pause there and hand it back to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. Um, uh, very important um, statements you made, and uh, I think particularly take-home messages that we need a systems approach, and we need to mainstream resilience in, in all of our programming and responses, and humanitarian assistance, uh, while important for immediate response will not be enough to uh, address the uh, longer term crisis as we're facing them today. And we also get some concrete examples of uh, uh, how resilience could be built. So let's take us these um, uh, messages forward onto our uh, panel. And understand that Jim, you may not have the time to 
join us for the rest of the session, but thank you very much for your remarks and uh, hopefully uh, to the extent you can stay, you can further pick up on the discussion. Um, so let me introduce the, the panel. We're um, running a bit late in the schedule, uh, but um, let's uh, hear from our six um, panelists, uh, experts in the field who start in the following um, sequence uh, with Tanya Boudreau, who is the deputy chief party of, uh, an, of for analysis of uh, FUSENET, um, then followed by Clemens Breisinger, who's IFPRI's team leader for the Middle East and uh, North Africa, and subsequently followed by David Elfer, who's um, uh, the conflict and violence prevention integrator of the Bureau of Conflict Prevention of USAID. Um, he is being followed by Arif Hussein, the chief economist and director of research and assessment and monitoring of the World Food Programme. Martin van Nieuwkoop, the global director of agriculture and food global practice, who will give the perspective from the World Bank. And last but not least, Dominique Bourgeon, the director of the FAO in Geneva and uh, formerly also the director of emergencies uh, of uh, FAO. Um, so before starting a discussion, I'm reminded to all of you um, that we'd like to hear from you um, as you can participate in the Q&A session that will follow and you can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and by using or by using hashtag AskIfpre uh, on Twitter. So let me start with uh, you, Tanya. Over the past uh, few months, food prices have risen to their highest levels in years, especially in low-income countries. It is affecting many of the vulnerable in the food crisis countries as well. So how important is food price monitoring if you snatch early warning systems and did the recent food price spike come on as a surprise or would you, uh, uh, could you anticipate this early on? And what other drivers of uh, acute food security over the past decade uh, most consistently have been on uh, FUSENET's uh, radar and what are the implications um, of the answers to the Gulf for resilience planning and programming more broadly? Over to Thank you, Rob, and thank you to IFPRI for organizing this important event. Um, the simple answer to your first question is that price, food price monitoring is a critical and core part of FUSENET's monitoring system, but I would stress that it is only one of the many components linked to acute food insecurity that we monitor. Um, we monitor more than just food prices because we know that poor households depend on a range of things beyond food purchases to meet their minimum needs. So, for example, um, the pie charts uh, on the screen uh, in front of you sum up data for poor households across almost 250 rural livelihood zones in Africa. And they show that poor households generally rely on two main sources of food. They either produce it themselves or they buy it from the market. And we are especially interested at, F at FuseNet in where households are getting the cash income they need to buy that food, which is shown on the pie chart on the right. This has been a major issue during COVID because a lot of the typical off-farm sources that households rely on, like casual labor and self-employment, were undermined during the pandemic. And we worry about this effective demand side of the equation just as much as we do the food price side. 
So food price monitoring is important to us um, because it helps us track the cost of the purchase component. But just as important is the range of other monitoring streams, such as the demand for casual labor, cash crop prices, livestock prices, and crop production. And to see where food price monitoring fits in, uh, it might be helpful to understand the analytical framework we use at FuseNet, which is based on a fairly simple formula. We evaluate the current and future risk of food insecurity by tracking the location, the magnitude, and the duration of different hazards, including natural hazards like droughts and floods, as well as man-made hazards like conflict and market shocks. And we interpret the household impact of those hazards in the context of different livelihood systems. So the price monitoring we do is linked to the hazards component of the equation, since every hazard or combination of hazards has its own unique set of supply and demand effects. But we're actually most interested in understanding the downstream effects of these price changes on household food security. So getting back to the second part of your question, you asked whether the recent food uh, price spike came as a surprise or if we could anticipate this early on. I would say that FuseNet, before, even before COVID-19, we were anticipating price increases in a number of countries, which are shown on this slide. Uh, the macroeconomic con context in these countries worried us even before COVID, and it worries us today. Uh, we are anticipating elevated prices throughout 2021 in line with projections from other institutions. And this is based on our read of production and the aggregate availability of key, key staple foods globally. So you also asked what other drivers of acute food insecurity over the past decade have been most consistently on FuseNet's radar. And the map on this slide shows areas where we have seen high levels of acute food insecurity on a fairly consistent basis. You'll see that conflict is one of the key drivers of acute food insecurity in FuseNet's geographies. And conflict coupled with weather shocks and poor macroeconomic conditions is a really toxic mix. We've seen over the course of just a few months, livelihoods in Tigray get decimated by conflict. And this was a region that over the past decade had become one of the more resilient areas in Africa due to careful international investment and government support. It takes a long time to build resilience and next to no time for conflict to wipe out these gains as we've seen. Of course, drought is another key driver, particularly in cases where we have multiple years of drought like in southern Madagascar. And what are the implications of this all for resilience planning and programming more broadly? Well, I would make a couple of points here. Clearly in areas where we see acute food insecurity outcomes on a regular basis, it would make sense to consider targeting resilience programs. These are areas where there's a frequent occurrence of hazards and the particular livelihood systems at play in these areas combine to create particularly poor food access problems. Uh, as Jim Barnhart mentioned, uh, every U.S. dollar invested in building people's resilience is likely to result in up to $3 in reduced humanitarian assistance and avoided losses. So clearly it makes sense uh, to, uh, to invest in these particular areas where we've seen uh, multiple years of, of acute food insecurity. 
And finally, the last point I would make is that uh, we know the best early warning depends on very specific uh, understandings of local livelihoods. And I believe that this principle also applies to good resilience planning. A one-size-fits-all approach is unlikely to succeed, so it's critically important to customize and calibrate resilience programming with local context and livelihood systems in mind. Um, thank you all, and uh, over to you, Rob. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Tanya, for explaining FuseNet's uh, approach, and uh, we've come a long way in designing much better early warning systems. Um, but uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, how then to link them to uh, resilience building responses, uh, that's still where we uh, need to do a lot more work. So let me, with that, let me uh, turn to Clemens Breisinger. Um, I'd like to talk maybe about some more specific uh, interventions and country context. So, so for instance, Yemen was one of the three countries facing famine and about 13.5 million people are facing crisis level of worse food, acute food insecurity. Um, now your team has been looking at uh, uh, cash transfer programs, particularly in, uh, in conflict situations, including in Yemen. So are these programs really helping attenuate uh, situations like that in, uh, in Yemen? And how can social protection programs form a bridge between emergency relief for more lasting solutions to food insecurity in conflict-ridden countries, including uh, Yemen? And what, uh, what, does, what lessons can we draw from that? Over to you, Clemens. Yeah, thanks, Rob, and many greetings from Egypt to everyone. Yeah, I'll focus my talk on the role of cash transfer in conflict settings, and I'll, I'll try to touch upon your questions, uh, Rob, as much as possible. Okay, let's, let's start by asking, what do we know about cash transfers? First of all, cash is obviously a fungible. So it allows purchasing wider variety of food items, and that's good for dietary diversity in general. Cash can also be used for non-food purchases, Sometimes people may need to pay for transport, health, or even start investing in small productive assets. Recent uh, research by IFPRI colleague Sikandra Kurdi and her team has found that cash and behavioral change communication during the civil war in Yemen also benefits children. It increases child dietary diversity and height for age among the poorest households. And that means long-term benefits, allowing a generation born during conflict to actually prosper in their adult lives. Now, this research also finds that cash also reduces reliance on borrowing and selling assets during conflict, which is very important for longer-term resilience. Now, cash also allows for significant cost savings compared to in-kind assistance for large-scale programs due to lower administrative costs. There are also indirect market benefits. Think of the multiplier effects uh, that we always talk about, where the cash helps the local economy to grow. Some estimates suggest that the benefit is $2 per $1 provided to beneficiaries. Now, also, that's something not many people think about, but it's increasingly important. Cash-based delivery can also be a way of strengthening local institutions. In some countries, mechanisms for cash delivery exist pre-conflict. Think of pension systems in some countries. Using and expanding such mechanisms during conflict can help 
longer term institution building. A good example for this is the social welfare fund uh, in Yemen. Now, of course, there are also challenges for cash in conflict settings. Markets may not be uh, working very well or supply chains may be disrupted by conflict. There are also some concerns that the cash lands in the wrong hands. In any case, the fact is that uh, in-kind assistance still dominates in many places. In Yemen, for example, it's estimated that currently less than 20% of the support to households is actually in cash. Now, let me share some thoughts and recommendations. First of all, there is a lot of scope to move towards more cash assistance. And this recommendation is also part of the 2016 grant bargain agreement between some of the largest donors and humanitarian organizations, many of us, uh, many of them with us in the virtual room today. But moving more to cash as a major delivery modality needs feasibility checks. Are there actually operating markets? How is the cash being delivered? Are we targeting the right people? These are just some of the important questions that we need to answer. In that sense, the grant bargain explicitly also mentions more data-driven delivery uh, of humanitarian aid and better coordination. So my hope and actually my suggestion is that as one of the outcomes of this seminar, we all further explore opportunities to expand our efforts on jointly producing more evidence in conflict settings to further improve the effectiveness and efficiency of humanitarian aid. Now, producing rigorous evidence in conflict setting is not easy, and that's why not a lot of it is out there, but it is possible. Data collection is becoming easier. Think of phone surveys. We have more and more statistics from space. We also have information from mobile phone operators, just to, to name a few new opportunities that are out there. Now, all the institutions gathered here in this meeting have unique comparative advantages, ranging from on-the-ground logistics and beneficiary databases to financial resources and research capabilities. I'm convinced that together we can continue to make a positive difference. Let me conclude by saying that moving more to cash in more places is important, but it's not a substitute for infrastructure investments and institution building. We estimate, for example, that Yemen's economy contracted by over 36% over the past few years, crops and livestock sectors by even more. Poverty stands at 80%, rural poverty up to 90%. That means we also need to focus on economic growth, and our research shows that especially agri-food system-led growth is effective on the path to recovery in countries like Yemen. And perhaps most critically, Post-conflict reconstruction needs a strong focus on policies and local institution building. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Clemens. That was uh, very clear. Um, so you've shown that social protection can be a, a good instrument to build resilience and protect people against food crisis, but also it needs careful design. So we don't know exactly what works best in each context and needs to be aligned with uh, a range of other interventions at the same time that uh, feeds back to Jay Barnett's point on sort of more systemic uh, approach to these issues, but also um, what can be done in order to, um, to prevent conflict also more directly. And that takes me to David Elfer uh, of the USAID Bureau of Conflict Prevention. Um, so 
the, the report emphasizes that uh, conflict uh, remains the main driver of the most severe food crisis. So it's uh, aside from the things we can do, but it maybe not enough is done by way of conflict prevention uh, in the support we provide to uh, to countries. So how can um, efforts be turned um, much more into preventative actions that can build resilience against crisis? And what is USAID doing to align short-term humanitarian relief and longer-term development assistance um, uh, along the lines what Jim uh, Barnard introduced by way of uh, concept? Over to you, David. Thank you very much. And I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor. I'm thrilled to see this report as well, although the findings are so grim. Uh, I'm going to take a moment to foot stomp that nexus between food insecurity and conflict. That yes, conflict is both a major cause of as well as a result of food insecurity. And the conditions surrounding this are extremely dynamic and complex. So we need very, very local definition of what we do from here. Rapid shifts in food availability or prices can trigger unrest and heighten intergroup tensions. Conflict disrupts food distribution networks and economic systems and the livelihoods needed to secure food access. Food itself frequently becomes a weapon in conflict with structural denial of supplies and territory to one party by another or through destruction of fields, crops, and livestock. All of these factors can increase tension and provide flashpoints for both structural and physical violence, which in turn compound assistance challenges. So it's critical to plan for, <clears throat> to plan, excuse me, for this nexus and against such consequences proactively. And that's the, the programmatic context we're all working in. So how can our efforts be turned to prevention and resilience? The good news is that building resilience against crises like these involves looking through a conflict-focused lens and making good use of a particular toolkit more than it does replacing food security programs with something new and different or altering the basic nature of food security programming or adding new layers of administration and implementing requirements on top of implementing partners. So an example, USAID has a definition of resilience with regard to food security, which is largely technical. It's focused on markets, systems of production and distribution. The conflict prevention field, on the other hand, looks at resilience in terms of people and politics. It's about the ability of social groups and systems of governments to withstand shocks, to find ways to come together when under stress, instead of splitting apart or turning on each other. And that shift in perspective is critical in this case for all the reasons I mentioned before about conflict as a cause and result of food insecurity. This isn't a nexus we can get away from. Conflict is about people and politics. It arises within and between social groups. Populations in these contexts are badly traumatized more often than not. Recon recognizing resilience as a social issue also urges us to look for those places where trauma aware programming is necessary both in the short term and because it will help ease that transition from human humanitarian relief to longer term development. Unless we deal with those psychosocial aspects of the populations we work within, we're missing a lot of risks, but we're also missing opportunities to leverage our projects to even greater good. Once we view resilience this way, we see the minefields and the opportunities differently, the socio-political landscape differently, and we're able to divine how we do this in a more appropriate kind of way. 
Uh, altering the way we do business in such contexts is all about how implementers see the conditions around them and how implementers move within them. It allows implementers to view their operations in such unstable places as part of and influencing those dynamic contexts, the conflict itself, and thus to act on the need to be intentional about approaching both risks and opportunities using all available tools to pivot and adapt when circumstances merit, helping to ensure that interventions have their intended effects. Uh, case in point, that conflict-sensitive lens includes continual analysis and monitoring, flexible systems design, adaptive management, and monitoring evaluation and learning that incorporates conflict-sensitive indicators. These are tools that we have and can use them right now, even if future iterations of them will be more effective. Another example, procurement reform has meant there's ever more flexibility available in funding so that programs aren't locked into fixed patterns, but can pivot and adapt to changing circumstances as they appear. The dynamic nature of conflict means those pivots will be necessary. We know that for a fact. Yes, more of that flexibility is needed. Not every funding mechanism used in conflict-affected areas has the necessary levels of it, but we're getting there. Uh, building on those opportunities, that's the core of strengthening resilience, fostering collaboration, and mitigating the risks of future conflict and violence. Now, one constant long-term answer is we are doing more research, more analysis, and more assessment. We have a great deal of this already, but we need more. We need to operationalize it more effectively. I do want to note, though, that this is pretty much a boilerplate answer. Yes, we do need more because that's the only way we keep evolving programs to new levels, but it's also important to note that when you hear people like me say things like that, more assessment, more research, more analysis, you're hearing a social scientist for whom there is never any such thing as enough research analysis and assessment. There's the boilerplate part. We know a great deal already. We have more than enough to act on, and that lens, those existing tools that I mentioned, they're tried and tested at this point. Doing it is challenging. This is not easy stuff, but the changes and leaps forward have really come when we had the will to act on them, and that's what it takes in situations like this. So what are we doing to align short-term relief with long-term development? The major key to this is recognizing that the linkage between those two things is peace. The major breakdown between those two things is conflict. Once we get ourselves properly focused on that as a bridge, and it's not the only bridge, as, as other presenters have pointed out, these are dynamic systems. There is no one single answer. There's no panacea here. But this is necessary, if not sufficient. We can't do it without recognizing this. The instrumental how, the activity how, flows from there. We're not talking about a technical answer. We're talking about a peace-building answer. Uh, USAID is also, and this is a shameless plug here, building the Center for Conflict and Violence Prevention within the Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization. This is a far more operational body than its predecessor, the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation, was. And we can provide technical assistance across the spectrum of USAID programming as well as analysis and assessment that will help identify both those areas of resilience to build on and fragilities that need addressing. We can help ensure that programs recognize and understand the social and political dynamics of conflict so as to correct for them and build peace where that's possible. 
but at the very least also recognize where USAID assistance may contribute to friction or conflict and to avoid having that effect. So we'll leave it there for now and turn it back over to you, Rob. Uh, happy to take any questions after this. Oh, no, thank you very much, uh, David, and also laying out the complexities of uh, even if you know what how to act um, on the ground, it, it may be difficult to, to implement if we can't break through the, uh, the particular um, political um, and community conflict uh, situation. So it's uh, very important to to press harder um, in 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 trying to break through um, those uh, those complex to to get through those complexities uh, and uh, and translate uh, what we know into concrete uh, action. Um, let me turn now to Arif Hussein, who's the chief economist of the World Food Program. Uh, Arif, uh, the World Food Program warned last year that COVID-19 could push another 130 million people into crisis-level acute food insecurity. Well, though the numbers we've seen and heard are very alarming, the report does not indicate such a large increase. Does that mean you are too pessimistic, or uh, aren't we looking at um, at all the food crisis context that you refer to when you made that uh, that estimate uh, last year? What does it mean for uh, what we need to do in terms of improve our monitoring capacity? But maybe also turning to the solutions uh, from what we heard from Tanya and Clemens in particular. Um, so how is uh, the food price increase that we've seen recently affecting the WFP's uh, response capacity? And what does it mean in terms also for the design of the cash transfer program that uh, WFP is also working on in many food crisis contexts? Over to you, Arif. Thanks, thanks, Rob. Um, hello, everyone. No, thank you for this uh, this question. I really appreciate being being here, and also all the the, the good comments and uh, remarks which have been made so far. What I would I would like to say is that um, you know global report on food crisis is an excellent report. We have been part of them for the last five five years. It has the consensus uh, and. Um, it's it's uh, it's a flagship report. There's no doubt about it. Um, but the one thing which is which is different is that this is only covering 55 countries. Now, uh, if uh, it was business as usual, like uh, John Piero was saying, it's 97 percent of uh, external assistance, 55 countries. That would be great. But unfortunately, 2020 was not. Uh, business as usual. And uh, there was uh, more poverty, there was more hunger um, in the countries, you know, as well as in other countries. So us as WFP, we had to analyze all the countries where we are present. So we had to look at, instead of uh, 55 countries, we were looking at the whole scale of our operations, which was about 80 countries. So that's where the difference comes from. So that was that was one thing. The second thing which Dominica was saying was that um, IPC, sometimes it doesn't cover the full country. It covers locations and people uh, ranging anywhere from 4%, 3% of a country to 100% of a country. When we did the simulations for COVID, we were covering the entire country, urban, rural, and also 
The third part, which was different, is different, is that global report on food crisis does not cover refugee populations or displaced populations in that sense, refugee uh, populations. We cover that. So when you put all of this together, you will obviously see a big difference. And that is true today. I mean, we have now, we have done uh, out of these, uh, you know, our initial projections were based other than the simulations, but uh, countries' uh, assessments in the start were based on less than 20. Right now we have over 50 assessments and our, our results are holding quite good. So, so we, feel, we feel quite uh, comfortable about that. My thing is that if we are going to go into these types of situations anytime, you know, more, what we need to do is to have a situation where we can provide these projections at the global level. And that has happened. So I will give you an example of, maybe Martin will talk about it, uh, where food, uh, World Bank did uh, extreme poverty simulations, which showed 143 to 163 million more people in entering extreme poverty. FAO did on chronic hunger, which came up from any, up to 132 million people in chronic hunger. So if extreme poverty and chronic hunger are increasing by the same 130 plus million people, how can acute be less? I mean, it's, logically it doesn't make sense. So, so, so there is this, uh, so, you know, what, what the, the, the beauty here is that there is a lot of convergence in the global figures. So there is no really uh, um, a conflict or, or a disagreement. It's just that global report on food crisis about 55 countries and this problem is bigger than 55 countries. That's simple. Now, coming to the second part, which is obviously very worrying for us is the rising prices. As you, as you can see, I mean, right now we have prices at the levels of 2011. That was uh, when Arab Spring uh, um, happened. We are worried about two things. When prices go up, they affect our beneficiaries. People need more assistance for longer period of, periods of time because of affordability issues. But also our purchasing power goes down because we buy, last year we bought about $1.7 billion of food, about 3 million tons. And you know, if prices are up by 30, 40%, I mean, you're gonna see that on our side. So we get in a situation where we buy less if the monies are held at the same level and the needs uh, uh, go up. The second thing and the last point I wanna make is about, you know, 2008 food and fuel crisis, it was about the price effect, prices were going up. 2011, it was again, still price effect, prices were going up, income effect was constant. There was no income effect. People's jobs weren't lost. This time around, we are seeing both at the same time. So you have the prices going up, and at the same time, people's incomes have been decimated. Uh, ILO last estimate was about $3.7 trillion less in income. So when you combine the two, you see who's going to be suffering. I think we are looking at a situation which uh, going forward where needs are way, way, way up. Need the, the, the resources available to address those needs is way, way, way lower. And hence, every dollar needs to be spent to its fullest uh, potential optimal use, whatever, however you wanna say it, I'll stop here, thank you. 
thank you, Arif. And um, yeah, it was clearly the challenges that are there for uh, the, the people, also the challenge for WFP in providing assistance, particularly with rising food prices. Um, so let's hope we, we can get and step up the response uh, capacity uh, soon. Um, let me now turn to Martin van Nieuwkoop, who's the Global Director for uh, Agriculture and, and Food at, at the World Bank. Um, so we've been looking at, uh, and mentioned several times, the protected situations of food crisis, uh, particularly in situations of conflict and civil strife. So what can you say about uh, the insights from the World Bank on, on what's constraining development and perpetuating conflict uh, and uh, fragile situations uh, in these contexts and what contributions uh, development of the food system can make in overcoming these um, hurdles. And also maybe you could say a bit more about uh, what financing instruments the, the World Bank has in its toolkit to address food crisis in these fragile and conflict affected uh, situations. Over to you, Martin. Very good, thank you very much, uh, Rob, and uh, very pleased to be part of this uh, of this uh, panel and a very important uh, subject, uh, of course. Yeah, I think in you know in response to your first question, I mean, what do we know? Um, we are about to come up with a new paper uh, as part of the bank's future of food series. I mean, titled "Building Strong, Stronger Food Systems in Fragile Conflict and Violence uh, Situation." And, uh, and that paper actually points out, I mean, that uh, sustained development in FCD countries is constrained. And of course, we know that by multiple interlocking characteristics, now poor governance, weak institutional capacity, lack of state legitimacy, low social cohesion, inadequate security, high exposure to climate shocks, undeveloped private sector, significant internal displacement, I can go on and on. But food crises that feed into reinforcing a vicious circle, and that gets us to those protected situations that Joe was talking about in his uh, introduction. Now, considering that the food system is the largest private segment and provider of jobs in FCV countries, um, the paper that puts forward, I mean, that food systems can help reduce conflict and improve social cohesion, and therefore food security needs to be seen as a foundational element of poverty reduction in these uh, contexts. Uh, now, and then more specifically, you know, what would be the entering points for the food systems to play this role? And, you know, four uh, areas are put forward. I mean, first is that, um, that the governance and institutional capacity can be strengthened, you know, by building accountability, transparency, predictability, and objective targeting in the food distribution, food for work, cash for work programs, and other agriculture subsidy programs that are out there, and by involving and strengthening community-based organizations and institutions in these efforts. And second, I mean, job creation can be promoted through agribusiness development. I mean, with support focusing on inclusive business models, building and protecting capital stock in food systems, I mean, strengthening skills, improve access to finance, including with a role to play for political realistic insurance. A third entry point is to conflict, to, uh, that, um, that conflict risks and shock and environmental fragility can be reduced by supporting resilient and sustainable resource management, particularly access to and use of land and water among herders and crop producers, which often can be a very important source of conflict. 
and you know, with a specific attention to land administration. And fourth, of course, is a need to adequate prevention and response to food crisis. And this can be ensured by supporting early warning systems, improving crops and livestock resilience to pest diseases, droughts, and floods, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the second part of your question, is: what financing instrument does the bank have? I mean, of course, we have our regular financing. And what you see is that, um, you know, at around the food price crisis, 2007, 2008, the bank provided about $4 billion a year for food and nutrition security. Over time, it has increased to last year, 14 billion, and now, and now it's projected uh, this year and next to get to around $17 billion uh, per year. Now, what you see is also a very significant increase in FCV countries. At the time of the food price crisis, our financing was about $250 million per year. Last year, it was $2 billion, and now we're getting to $3 billion. And these, these projects that we're financing cover many of the elements, I mean, that I just mentioned in the first answer, you know, I mean, the answer to, my, to your first question. And many of these projects also have contingency emergency response components. Uh, so when a crisis hit, so those projects are addressing the medium to long-term drivers, but when a crisis hit, I mean, this contingency uh, funding under those components can be mobilized. And this has been an important part of the bank's response to rising food insecurity as part of COVID-19. Um, a second instrument uh, relates to the um, early response financing mechanism under the crisis response window of AIDA, which is the bank's uh, soft loan arm for the poorest country. And, and this um, mechanism provides contingency financing to countries facing health and uh, food crisis, food security emergencies. And the total envelope that was allocated to this uh, last year when AIDA 19 became effective was a billion dollars. Now, so based on FuseNet data, uh, then food insecurity projections are being done um, for quite a number of IDA countries. Uh, those are generated on a regular basis. And then, um, you know, focusing on when countries move from IPC2 to IPC3. Um, uh, currently, we have about 13 countries, I mean, that have been uh, identified and actually accessing those funds under that uh, mechanism. Uh, we think, I mean, that that financing you know, focusing on IPC2 to IPC3 complements, I mean, the humanitarian assistance that normally is focused on IPC3 plus uh, situation. We have other instruments as well. I mean, the Global Concessional Financing Facility, and I can talk about it maybe in more detail in the Q&A. Back to you, Rob. Uh, many thanks, uh, Martin. And uh, it's good to know these, the, these financing instruments that you have uh, developed. Um, so maybe that uh, takes me to Dominique Bourgeon, since the last but not least on this panel, maybe how that could be aligned with the work of the Global Network Against uh, Food Crisis that uh, has been pushing towards um, integrating humanitarian relief, long-term preventative development action and peace building uh, efforts. Um, now this agenda was already set in 2016, as Jean Piero has indicated and uh, also taken forward in a high-level event in, in Brussels uh, two years ago to rally support uh, behind uh, that agenda. But clearly alarming data we've heard, uh, much more is needed. So Dominique, uh, what in your view are the main bottlenecks to get to more structural solutions and uh, um, how effective uh, is the global network in overcoming these uh, bottlenecks? And last, and um, that um, also ties in with uh, a few questions that have come already from the audience. Um, 
Uh, what can we expect from the UN Food System Summit in this regard? Um, over to you, Dominique. Well, thank you, Rob. And first of all, I would like, of course, to thank IFPRI and you, Rob, in particular, in particular for inviting us to what has now become a most uh, expected uh, yearly event. A lot, of course, has already been said, uh, coming as the last speaker, but uh, as previously uh, has been mentioned by some of the, the other speakers, uh, it's clear that the 2021 edition of the Global Report on Food Crisis, which depicts the global acute food insecurity situation based on high level of consensus among 16 partners, is indeed deeply uh, worrying. In 2020, as was said, the number of people experiencing acute food insecurity has never been as high uh, since we basically uh, started with this uh, global report. Unsurpr unsurprisingly, uh, the rise in acute uh, anger has been accompanied by a steady growth in uh, funding for humanitarian assistance in these countries. Uh, a recent analysis that was done in the context of the global network shows that between 16, 2016 and 2019, humanitarian assistance to food uh, security in food crisis uh, context rose by almost 25%. However, very little was allocated to agriculture, to the agriculture sector, short and long-term interventions, uh, despite the fact that, as you all know, up to 80% of people in acute food insecurity depend on agriculture for their livelihoods. So this definitely highlights uh, a, a significant structural uh, uh, problem. But indeed, coming to your question, Rob, uh, what are the key challenges in preventing and addressing food crisis? First, uh, according to us, it is clear that translating humanitarian development peace nexus approaches from theory to practice at country level remains a major challenge, especially in, fra in fragile se settings. Yes, we are good at piloting. I would say less good at going to scale even if some key partners, many, I would say, in this virtual room, are now more and more uh, walking the talk. Uh, also, uh, what is uh, very uh, important is that global discussion around the nexus are too often, uh, I would say, uh, continue to have uh, limited impact uh, frameworks and funding to have a limited impact on frameworks and funding decisions at country level. Different actors have different understanding also of what uh, HDP approach entails. And there are few, if any, uh, coordination mechanisms to support this. Second, national and regional ownership is absolutely key. We must proactively enhance uh, national and regional ownership of efforts to address the root causes of uh, food insecurity. This means, whenever possible, engaging with government and national stakeholders and ensuring the work of international community contributes to the long-term vision that is developed by the countries. Then, as was said uh, by one of the previous speakers, more, I think, uh, there is definitely no one size uh, fits all. Only this way we can ensure the sustainability of our intervention. Finally, we need to work more to integrate programs and investments related to food security and agriculture with other relevant sectors. As Jean-Pierre was saying, we need to go beyond food and engage, for example, with peace actors in countries affected by conflict and insecurity. And this is definitely a key endeavor of the global network against food crisis. To come to your, the second part of your question, what is indeed the role of the global network in all this and the contribution it is bringing uh, to the UNFS-related process? 
As a matter of fact, the, the vision underpinning the global network is exactly about this. It's about bringing all actors around the broad spectrum around the table to indeed work and at the, to prevent and respond uh, to food crises. In, in this context, I would say that the, the global network is clearly uh, seizing the momentum uh, generating by the UN Food System Summit to mobilize partners at all levels, global, regional, and national, to identify and address policy and investment and governance uh, challenges that are preventing governments to indeed go uh, towards sustainable solution to uh, food crises. At country level, the global network is building capacities and supporting government and local actors to engage uh, with humanitarian and development partners in designing and implementing a set or a current set of country-owned policies. Specifically, efforts are now focusing on facilitating uh, effective national food systems uh, dialogues. These dialogues, we feel, are key entry points for agreeing on food system transformation and pathways to that goal. A key area of work is to enhance, as was said, analytical uh, capacities to make sure that all these decisions are evidence-based. Technical support is also uh, being provided to ensure that all ongoing moni monitoring and analytical process at country level are coherent and harmonized to indeed inform uh, this di dialogue. At the global level, the Food System Summit provides an opportunity to secure and advocate for consensus uh, under action track five of the summit, a potential coalition of partners, as was mentioned by the USAID colleagues, supporting this approach is being established. Uh, being con building on this, the global network would continue its role as a pivotal global platform uh, for joint consensus-based assessment and joint programming. Uh, we see basically the summit as the beginning of our efforts uh, to build resilient food system and the global network is of course, clearly committed to support this process in the long term and to support the implementation of the summit recommendation in and by countries. Thank you all. Thank you very much, uh, Dominique. I'm particularly also elaborating on what the UN Food System Summit uh, can do. Um, and that would also be hopefully a good platform to push this agenda further and, and hopefully you can get to, to better outcomes. Now, I have a bit of a problem since I promised to have some interaction with the audience. Um, we had a little bit because I interjected uh, these questions on, on the, uh, what the UN Food System Summit uh, could do, which you already responded to, uh, Dominique. But in passing, Sylvia have already answered several of the other questions uh, as well. There's still out, outstanding questions, but um, since we're running out of time, I apologize for that. So we have to go straight to the uh, concluding uh, remarks, um, but we will uh, pick up your questions and uh, feed them back to the to the panelists uh, uh, after this uh, session. Uh, so um, with that, thank all that have submitted uh, questions and uh, we they won't go to waste, we'll take them on board and uh, as I said, uh, channel them to the um, to the panelists. Um, with that, uh, let me give the floor to Justin Brown Hall, who's the new uh, director of the uh, FEO office in uh, North America, and based in Washington, D.C. She just joined the office this week, but before that, she was the deputy regional representative for uh, FEO's regional office for uh, Africa, and uh, within that context, uh, has been uh, 
face to face with many of the food crises that we've been discussing today. So very uh, happy to have you on board, uh, Jocelyn. Uh, over to you. You have the floor. So much, Bob, and it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I am on my third day for the job, and uh, I look forward to meeting everybody um, uh, as soon as I can uh, here, and also those who are listening in. Um, I uh, got my second Pfizer shot last night, um, so I am vaccinated, and I look forward to seeing everyone in person. Um, you know, there's a, this has been a rich discussion, and I think uh, even for those of us who are steeped in this area um, in food insecurity and global prices and global um, availability of food and conflicts, as we are in FAO and, and our colleagues in IFPRI, World Bank, uh, WFP and others, FuseNet, USAID, EU are involved, there's still some really incredible information coming out of this report. Um, I think that understanding where um, where exactly the acute in food insecurity is, but also recognizing that the report may not cover everything uh, in terms of the displaced persons and refugees. So uh, data is critical uh, to food insecurity, to combating food insecurity. Sometimes data is not viewed as being that interesting or um, it's it's a little, it has a little bit less uh, star power than uh, perhaps uh, helicopters or drones flying over and food coming down. Um, but it is really the fundamental part to how we address food insecurity. And so I'm thrilled to be part of this panel and to be able to provide, uh, to just be with these panelists and, and hear uh, what they had to say about the report. Um, I think we need uh, to think both about, um, you know, some, some final remarks as one size does not fit all. Um, and going to my colleague Dominique's point about we really need to ensure that we have national and regional ownership. I think that's uh, critical and, and that's part where each of our organizations um, does play a role. Um, we also need to be involved with the civil society and, um, and the other players uh, to address this, the conflict issues that are both the cause and the result um, of food insecurity. So um, there's, it's, it's a wide array of actors. And I think the Food System Summit uh, coming up this fall will actually spotlight um, how, how vast this area is and um, how many uh, players that we need to address and stakeholders we need to involve. Um, I was very interested and heartened to hear um, about it, issues around uh, supporting resilience and agri-food systems um, because the humanitarian assistance, while critical and will remain critical, is costlier. And I think um, if we could actually spotlight um, more of the agri-food systems and the resilience programs to prevent food insecurity, um, I think our, our uh, finite uh, development dollars will go farther. Um, finally, as a uh, closing remark, um, I think all of us involved in the food insecurity world knew once COVID hit that this was not going to be just a public health crisis. This, this was going to be a food insecurity crisis. And um, I think, you know, originally last summer with the way the government dealt with things and social protection programs, uh, we were able to avoid perhaps more uh, acute food insecurity. And now what we're seeing from this report is that um, we can't avoid it anymore. I was in Zimbabwe uh, last year. Uh, I got actually stuck there uh, for COVID. I was stuck there for five months. And, um, you know, you could see this sort of wave coming on of food insecurity and, uh, and now we're realizing it. So um, it's, it's sobering, but um, 
with the joint programming together, the joint um, emphasis on in, on information, our different programming, and, and what we can do, uh, uh, whether we're on the donor side or we're on the uh, technical assistance side or the humanitarian side, um, it is really critical that we use this information to uh, program jointly. So with that, hopefully I have not run through my uh, closing remarks too much. And again, I hope to meet everyone in person uh, very soon. Thank you very much for including me. Thank you, Justin. I think that's a good closure of, um, of this seminar. And again, I apologize for having uh, not having controlled the time of the panelists sufficiently, but I can't blame them either. We address many questions to them. Um, this is an urgent matter. Um, I think the message is very clear. We need systematic, uh, systemic approaches to it, aligning um, humanitarian systems, development assistance, peace building efforts, and that we need to do together. It's not just a local problem, it's a, it's a global problem. And hopefully the UN Food System Summit will take that to heart and so that this seminar has helped to bring that high up to that agenda. So with that, let me thank you all again very much uh, for your contributions and for the audience for listening. And hopefully um, this will help finding the right solutions to this uh, urgent humanitarian problem. Thank you very much. <laughs>